Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes, welcome to part two of um, dealing with the past. Um, so last week we looked at Jesus's um, meeting with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well from John chapter four. And really this preach only makes sense if you've heard last week. So if you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to go on Jubilee's website and catch that. Um, so last week we noticed how Jesus was prepared to spend time with the woman going against cultural norms and he gently guided her to talk about her past. He knew her history but spoke to her without judgment or condemnation. Rather he showed love and kindness as she unburdened herself and because she felt heard and understood the woman felt able to sort, out, sort things out with God and then to tell others about what Jesus had done for her. Her declaration, he told me everything I ever did, was full of relief at being heard, joy at not being condemned, and hope that life could change now. There was a realization that the past had led to her present and caused her to get into unhelpful patterns of behavior, but it didn't have to determine her future. She was able to make changes and experience her life transformed. So today we're looking at what does this teach us? How can dealing with my past help me to experience God's presence more fully? And what does that look like? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's widely acknowledged that nothing that happens to us in our lives ever gets lost. Even if we don't consciously remember events, they're stored somewhere in our minds, even if we don't have ready access to them. A helpful example of this is um, if you take somebody with dementia, research shows that if they experience something pleasurable like a, a family visit, um, th that emotional memory stays with them. So even if they don't remember the fact of the family visiting, there's still a sense of emotional well-being after it um, because it remains somewhere in the mind and gives comfort. In my work as a therapist, I support people with problems and difficulties that they're encountering in the here and now, but it's a real crucial part of my work to think with my clients about their past, what's happened and contributed to the way that they respond to other people. Was there a time when they were younger that they felt in a similar way to how they do now? And what was happening at that point? What were their early relationships like? You see, the ways we relate to other people and our emotional responses are inextricably linked to what went on in our early relationships and experiences, both for the positive and for the negative. So I want to give you a bit of an example about my life from my own life and hope that that will illustrate it. Um, I've always been a little bit of a people pleaser, which I'm sure some of you will relate to. Um, I used to agree to anything and everything just to keep people happy. Um, and I'd even volunteer Steve sometimes for things without consulting him, which caused me double, double um, problems because I'd, I'd agree to Steve doing something and to make someone else happy, but then Steve wasn't happy with me. So I'd have to try and undo it um, to keep Steve happy. But then this person might not be happy with me because I had to undo it. It was, a, I got into some real messes. Um, but this all, it also meant that sometimes I sacrificed the presence of God in my life. The urge to please other people sometimes came between me and God. 
because it controlled some of the decisions I made. I was driven by the urge to keep someone sweet rather than bringing God into it. So I can remember one occasion when I was working full time and um, Steve was uh, training to be a therapist and working part time. The girls were little and we were getting involved with the church plant. We were, had a very, very hectic, busy life. And it was a, an August bank holiday Monday um, and it was beautiful weather. And I was just looking forward to a day. I, I, was, I felt depleted, exhausted, emotionally drained. I just needed a day in the garden, just slobbing around. Phone went, someone from the church, would you like to come around for a barbecue? I, oh no. But it, as the conversation went on, it was clear that she, she might get a bit upset if I said no. So I, against all my better judgment, I said, yeah, okay, yeah, but you know, we're tired. Oh, that's all right. Just come eat and then you can go again. Right, okay. So I'll keep her happy. So we went along and uh, we got out of the car just wanting to smell that barbecue smell. Nothing, nothing. So we got in the house it was evident that no food had even been prepared yet. There was nothing ready for this barbecue. And, uh, and so I thought, oh, I'll keep them happy. I better offer to help prep. So we set to offer to help prep. This was not your bog standard burgers and sausages. This was more like a Gordon's barbecue, I have to say. It was homemade burgers. It was um, kebabs. It was skewers. It was marinades. It was homemade everything and with about 50 different salads. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating when I say we were um, prepping for upwards of two hours on this lovely sunny day. While we were prepping, she just slipped into the conversation. Oh, I know you knew you wouldn't mind, but I've just invited the neighbors along as well. For me, that was just like, not only had I got to prepare all this food, now I've got to talk to people and be nice to them that I don't even know. It gets worse. The bloke, it's always the bloke, isn't it? it? has to do the barbecuing. So he started, he got overzealous with the fire lighters, burnt his hand. So Steve had to do all the cooking. So let me tell you, I did not feel much of the presence of God on that day. I felt resentful. I felt grumpy. I felt like a martyr. But hey-ho, we kept them happy. But why was I into pleasing people? Actually, for me, it was mainly a strategy to avoid confrontation. I was aware that whenever I experienced other people's anger, whether it was directed at me or someone else, I'd, I'd get this um, shivering sensation right deep inside me. And um, it, it was involuntary, I couldn't control it. And my teeth would start to chatter. And um, I felt really unsafe. I felt unable to tolerate it in actual fact and would do anything to avoid it. What was causing that? It was a reaction I knew was a bit extreme, but I couldn't control it. So the only thing I could do was try and avoid it happening. So I ran myself ragged trying to please everybody. And, and I knew that God didn't really want me to live like this, but I needed to understand what was going on in me before I could change the way I responded. So I did some digging into my past. Um, when I'd experienced people being angry and I looked into the memories that stood out for me. 
I remember one occasion when I was about 22 and I'd met Steve, but we weren't married at that point. And the leader of the church that we were going to, I, I, you know, I can't even remember the reason now, but for some reason he totally lost his rag with me and Steve. And he was out of control, ranting and raving at us, shouting. Do you know what I did? I felt this trembling and shivering inside, inside my real core. So I curled up in a ball on the floor, put my cardigan over the top of my head and started to cry. <laughs> now, even I know that it, it wasn't nice to be shouted at by this vicar, but I also know it was a bit out of proportion to react the way that I reacted. It was a little bit extreme. So go back a little bit further into my memory when I was smaller. Um, and this process can be a bit like peeling an onion or a lettuce. You just keep peeling off the layers until you, get, you feel you really can know that you've got to the heart of it. So another vivid memory I had was when I was about five or six. And that involved one of my foster brothers, who must have been about 14 or 15. He was about nine or 10 years older than me. And um, me and my brother, we must have been teasing him. Um, but um, he got really, really mad with us. And he picked up this garden rake. We had a big garden, I have to say, at that point. But he, he um, started chasing us around the garden, brandishing this rake at us, saying, I'm going to kill you when I catch you. And that's not a threat. It's a promise. And that was always his phrase. It's not a threat. It's a promise. And um, we were terrified. So we ran and took refuge in my parents' bedroom. And uh, we, were, we were just looking out the window at him and he was shaking this ray us, telling us he was going to kill us. I'll tell you, in that moment, we really thought that that's what he wanted to do. It was really frightening. I'm laughing now, but it was a really scary experience. Peel off another few layers to um, when I was a baby, there was another incident. Um, the first child that my parents fostered was a, a little boy of seven. Um, he had had a string of foster placements, children's homes. Um, they'd all broken down. My parents were told that this was his last chance, really. There were no other options for them. So they agreed to let him come and live with us. And he was, let me tell you, he was a very disturbed seven-year-old boy. He was unloved, unwanted, discarded. And my mum tells a story of me being breastfed when I was about six weeks old. And um, this boy lost his temper and started throwing the furniture around in the room that we were in. So the chairs were going, the tables were being overturned. He was full of rage and fear and hopelessness. He had so much emotional baggage, he couldn't help it. He was helpless. My mum was helpless. I was helpless. He was so frightened and my mum was trying to keep calm, trying to keep me safe. Now, I don't have a conscious memory of this, but I will have absorbed all that powerful emotion when I was a baby. Um, I will have an emotional memory of it. It's not lost, but it's stored in my brain somewhere where non-verbal memories go, where my emotional and physical responses are put. And because I had no words for it, it was stored as a feeling. And it's this feeling that I believe was being triggered when other people got angry around me later on in my life. 
So my early experiences led me to respond in a frightened way to other people being angry. And I know that that led me to agreeing to do things for people so that they wouldn't get angry with me. This drove my decisions and actions and got in the way of fully experiencing the presence of God in my life. Why? Because fear was dictating my actions. Now, I know from the Bible that Jesus doesn't want, doesn't want us to live in fear. He wants us to live in his love. That his perfect love casts out fear. He doesn't want any area of my life to be driven by fear. And areas that are dictated by fear can't be fully experiencing the presence of God. I hope that that makes sense to you. So what can I do about it then? I've got to the heart of the problem, now what? Well, I can take it to God. I can ask for him to highlight any other experiences that might be contributing to it. I can ask for his healing. I can ask for his help to stand on his truth, ask for help to fully live in his love. I've needed to forgive some people like the vicar. I've needed to ask for forgiveness myself for sometimes putting other people before God. And some things I've just needed to understand, like the incident when I was six weeks old. I've also shared my story with other people and talked about it with my parents. I've understood why I responded the way that I did. And it's enabled me to make some changes, to look at anger in a different light. I can see that there are healthy ways to express anger, that it doesn't have to be destructive. And honestly, I'm genuinely not afraid of it anymore. On the rare occasions when I do get that shivering inside, because it is a bit of a conditioned response in me to someone being angry, I understand why it's happening. And I can speak God's truth to myself and ask the Holy Spirit for help. But you know, I needed to look at it and examine how I was feeling and work out why I was feeling that way before I could move forward and change the way I responded. And I think that's what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. He spoke with her in a way that others weren't prepared to. They judged what they saw on the outside without understanding. He saw her internal motivations and gently led her to accept how she was behaving, to understand why she was stuck in that cycle of serial relationships, to see that she needed to make some changes and enabled and supported her to make those changes. And really, letting Jesus shine a light on our difficulties is a truly liberating experience. We can come before God and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal if there's anything he wants to sort out in our lives. He's gentle. He doesn't condemn. He loves. He gently guides us, goes at our pace, and he can bring healing. And you know what? He knows about everything too. There's nothing under the sun that can faze him because he knows it already. He calls us in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So let his yoke lead you and determine your ways, not fear or guilt or shame. And I, I know I'm a work in progress, but I also know the promise that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. And I know that Jesus came that we can have life in all its fullness. And that is fully experiencing the presence of God in our lives. So just have a think. If anything I've said in the last two weeks resonates with you, if you're struggling with something you know from your past, or maybe like me, you don't understand why you respond in particular ways and you need to do a bit of exploring, or if you feel heavy and burdened and other yokes are guiding you. For me, I had a yoke of fear driving me. For some, it might be anger you can't control. For my foster brother, it was feeling unloved. It might be feeling you're not good enough. Others of you might be perfectionists, self-critical, control freaks. You might often think, how did I get into this mess? I'd encourage you to get some help. Often these things need someone else to help us with them. The Samaritan woman needed Jesus to illuminate her difficulties. She needed him to understand, to listen and support her and to enable her to change. So you might need someone to help you, to guide you through the process. He's put us together in church family, hasn't he? Supporting each other is part of God's plan. And Jubilee has various resources to help you do this. There'll be people you're naturally drawn to in friendship groups, there are small groups. Um, we have the pastoral team, as Andrew said, led by my husband, Steve, who can meet with you and help you process stuff on a one-to-one. -one. Um, Steve's written a blog about mental health and well-being available on the web website. Um, and that's well worth a read. And um, the, the workshops that Andrew spoke about in the um, notices are coming up. Um, I've had a sneak preview and they're, they're really, really good. I think they'll offer really thought provoking and practical ways for us to understand ourselves better and some helpful tools to understand how we tick. Some people might need more specialized help and, and support than we can offer as a pastoral team, but we can guide you to help you find the right services or people who can do that. Don't feel you have to struggle on your own. Remember, that our past experiences do shape our present, but they don't have to define our futures. By dealing with our past, we can forge new ways of being, new patterns of behavior, and there can be real hope for the future as we surrender more of ourselves and our lives to God's presence.